Welcome to Unfuck the Poor, episode 16, which happens to be chapter 11 of the book by the same name. As we near the end of the audiobook version of Unfuck the Poor, I think I've phrased my intros in every way humanly possible, so let me be a broken record. This podcast is free. All additional content and media is also available for free, show notes, editorials, links to media and other resources, as well as the full free PDF of Unfuck the Poor can all be found at askaleftist.com. This next chapter confronts the social barriers to economic transition. Let's call it a commentary on the first world philosophy on safety, comfort, and passive cruelty is next. So to restore our belief in the world is just, we try to convince ourselves that the victim must have done something. Across the country, advocates say a growing number of cities have been criminalizing homelessness. Criminalizing basic human behaviors like sitting down too long, sleeping, or even sharing In effect, in prisons are the new mental institutions. Found it subjected homeless people to cruel, inhuman, and degrading treatment. Then in 1988, President Reagan slashed federal mental health spending by 25%. Nearly half of all the homeless people living in the streets in America happen to live in the state of California. What they are doing to our beautiful California is a disgrace to our country. It's a shame. The world is looking at it. Look at Los Angeles with the tents and the horrible, horrible, disgusting conditions. Unfuck the Poor, Chapter 11, on safety, comfort, and passive cruelty. We have to revisit our idea of comfort. I'm not suggesting a communist sacrifice of creature comforts to achieve the death of the individual in favor of the common good. I don't believe individualism is incompatible with equity and collectivization, but we must first agree on what the individual is and what she can do. Can an individual own property? Not tangible assets, but permanent property such as land and the paper rights to its resources? I don't think the individual can own any land any more than an animal can own its habitat. We die, after all, so our ownership is never permanent. Even passing along assets is temporary. What if heirs don't want to take care of real property and instead choose to liquidate? If ownership of a place is at best a long-term lease, we can at least admit that present tense ownership is time-limited. But if we completely rid ourselves of the notion that land can be purchased, then what preserves and protects the place most sacred and meaningful to the individual, the home, the neighborhood, the community, and the city? The answer cannot be a central authority with the right to detain, brutalize, and murder, like the police. Such an authority is unaccountable to the extent of its granted rights. If lethal force can be justified, then it is the default eventuality of such authority. It will use that force, and that force should be held to scrutiny what justified its use. But if it is immune from scrutiny, then it acts with no more justification than any other criminal actor. Its motives, as well as its efficacy, become suspect. The topic of community policing has gained momentum and backlash with the rise of defund the police activism, which some are apt to say suffers from poor branding. That is, the idea of a movement stating its central goal is so foreign to us that we encourage it to be sold in less obvious language, and that is not a sound argument. The only rational logic against police defunding is that a clear understanding of public safety post-policing is not apparent to the uncreative. The counter, of course, is rethinking safety in general. What does safety look like, sound like, feel like? 
Do we really feel safe around police or do we feel guarded and self-conscious? Do we trust police to conduct honest internal investigations and hold themselves accountable? Do we, in fact, need police? The real issue at question, without police, without the right to property ownership, how does the sacred domain of home maintain stability? And on the flip side, is the sacred domain of home stable in the status quo? Ownership to property is granted according to the ability of the individual to pay for it, both in the sense of a bank-backed mortgage and in terms of property taxes, and in the ability to generate steady income to cover these and other ancillary costs of ownership. Ownership is therefore tenuous, inherently unstable, in addition to being time-limited. Ownership also assumes, on a much more philosophical level, that absolute yet intangible rights are somehow available to us via capital. You can no more own land than you can steal it. You can occupy it, defend it, and deplete it, but your ownership is a belief. The collection of property taxes justifies the granting of rights to use lethal force to a central authority because, presumably, that authority will serve to protect property to the fullest extent of its ability, to the death. Property taxes serve another useful function in that they set a reserve price for the rights to land within a community. You can hold and use the property so long as the minimum price or property tax is paid. But another way, with no other factors involved, an annual property tax payment of, say, one pair of Air Force Ones means that the property itself must either be able to produce Air Force Ones or the owner must procure a pair of Air Force Ones from somewhere else in order to pay the tax. For homeowners, it's unlikely that a city lot in Nashville, where I live, can produce the necessary revenue to pay property taxes. It's also equally unlikely that a homeowner will be willing or able to do that. It's quite easy to see how businesses use property to generate revenue that not only pays the reserve price for property, but also earns a profit. That is basically all they do. All things considered, the collection of property taxes and other local taxes represents a trade-off between the owners of property and the collector of taxes. Owning property is only worth the minimum reserve price if the collecting agency provides something of value. Otherwise, who would prefer to live in one community over another? If this sounds too technical, I'll simplify. What do people look for when they buy houses? Access to parks, shopping, good schools, restaurants, safe neighborhoods. These things are universal. There is another universal that no one asks when buying a house. What is the police department like? One part of the population assumes that when you have an emergency, the police will come and make things better. And one part of the population assumes that involving the police will make things worse. Like George Floyd worse. Whose safety is granted by the payment of property taxes? If not all of ours equally, do we as a result fund anyone's safety? If overnight we were to abolish not only the police and the carceral system, but all rights to land ownership and the need to pay property taxes, what would keep us from descending into utter chaos? The answer is neither convoluted nor complex. We already keep ourselves from descending into chaos, and we are already the victims of crime. Around 2010, break-ins in my neighborhood were a nightly occurrence. I have a suspicion that it was a direct result of the recession, but no hard evidence to back it up. Now, my brother, a cop, could warn me that the houses were being broken into and could give me street numbers, but there really wasn't anything he or any of the other cops could do to prevent them. Two men were eventually arrested, but break-ins continued after their arrest. Anyone who has ever had a car or house broken into knows pretty well that there is little to no chance of one, recovering your stolen property, and two, 
catching the dickhead who stole it. In short, the presence of police made me feel no more or less safe in my neighborhood when break-ins were happening every night. Imagine if, in addition to unsolved actual crimes in my neighborhood, there was also the problem of police arresting my neighbors for technical crimes. Misdemeanors such as petty theft, vandalism, drunken public, and traffic violations are technically crimes, but none of these things suggest imminent danger to the public at large, though they make up an estimated 75% of the U.S. jail population. If that were the situation in my neighborhood, the answer to who do they protect is a cognizant not us. Since I know that crime still happens in my neighborhood and in low to moderate income neighborhoods, and that blacks from those neighborhoods are disproportionately targeted by police, who do they protect becomes a moral roadblock. The police are not protecting me, but they aren't protecting them either. What then keeps our neighborhoods from falling into utter chaos? Possibly the fact that we don't want to live in chaos. I would be wrong to base this argument on misdemeanors alone. Serious crimes do occur and their victims fare no better in the distribution of justice. As an extreme example, take the ongoing national scandal that is the backlog of rape kit testing. In 2019, it was estimated that 200,000 untested kits were still sitting in police storage, many of them due to police negligence, as in police don't take the victim seriously or the victim is in some way to blame for his or her own rape. The preference for a so-called, quote, righteous victim who, quote, didn't know her assailant who fought back who has a clean record and hadn't been drinking or offering sex for money or drugs, that woman will be taken seriously, end quote. The moral judgment of detectives in the case of rape is a passive violence in which further victimhood is propagated. Rapists are likely to rape again and are allowed to do so when their victims are ignored. It is distinct from, but no less violent than, the judgment used by police officers on the street who escalate confrontations to the death. In neither case is the right to distribute justice exercised with the interest of protecting or serving the general public. Rather, it is done at the moral discretion of an individual acting extrajudicially, an absolute violation of the duties purportedly tasked to the police. The consequence is a remarkable number of serial rapists caught after these testing backlogs were brought to wider public attention. Take, for instance, Cleveland, Ohio. Quote, In 2011, the Ohio Attorney General launched the Sexual Assault Kit Testing Initiative, which incentivized law enforcement agencies across the state to submit all untested kits in storage to the state crime lab. In the years since, 294 law enforcement agencies across Ohio have submitted 13,931 kits for testing. As of February 2018, all of these kits have been tested. As of February 2021, the Crime Lab has completed analysis on 7,025 sexual assault kits from Cuyahoga County and ended the known backlog in Cleveland. The efforts resulted in the identification of 511 serial rapists and 826 indictments. One rapist identified through the backlog testing has been linked to 17 victims. End quote. So is the solution no police or more testing? If the alternative is to trust the established policing system to somehow become better by using the same people and resources, the answer is yes to both get rid of police and do more testing. Policing at present is not objectively safe for the general public. The idea that our right to property is somehow protected by the taxes we pay and the laws that are upheld is a handy fiction for those who don't have to interact with the justice system. 
While it is not a crime to be houseless or to have a drug or alcohol addiction, it is in some jurisdictions a crime to sleep, eat, urinate, and drink in public. The illegality of these behaviors becomes confused when a person arguably has no private place in which to do them. This is often framed as a violation of the Eighth Amendment, a precedent set by the 1962 U.S. Supreme Court case Robinson v. California, known as the Robinson Doctrine, which prevents criminalizing a person's membership in a certain status. At the time, very significant because California had a very specific law. It was illegal to be a drug addict. So... And well, that's fucked. What's more fucked is that the Robinson Doctrine apparently gets tossed aside when it comes to the houseless. Otherwise, non-criminal activity becomes criminal when it is done by someone without a place to live. While in legal speak you can walk a giant circle around the issue, Benno Weisberg does an effective job of jabbing straight through the circle. Quote, Although the laws these litigants challenge do not, as a technical matter, punish the status of homelessness or alcoholism, they do create situations in which it becomes impossible for homeless people or alcoholics not to break the law. End quote. To the extent that collectivization can prevent crime itself and to a specific degree actual crimes committed by the houseless and the formerly incarcerated, there is strength in numbers. Lucia Corno concludes in his 2017 study, Homelessness and Crime, Do Your Friends Matter?, that yes, friends do matter in terms of preventing crime. The likelihood of being arrested while houseless decreases as the total number of criminal and non-criminal friends increases. The difference is apparent even with the existence of just one friend, with the likelihood of being arrested dropping by 8%, increasing to 19% with an extra non-criminal friend. This is useful economics, and if you don't believe me, Corno did the math, which I've linked to at askaleftist.com. If it is mathematically possible to combat criminality and houselessness with friendship and houses, then it is at least worth pursuing the problem of why. If we have, in the complex field of economics where genuinely smart and concerned academics are publishing peer-reviewed data that we, presumably, use to guide the economic world, why the fuck are we still giving attention to the wholly useless subjects of deficits, inflation, and trade? We are told it has something to do with us and our individual freedoms. Granting others the rights to things that we have worked for somehow lessens our individuality. If we are not to give up our individualism, that same individualism that is at the core of capitalism, the individualism that makes up competition and greed and self-serving, can we achieve the desired effect of eliminating capital harm? Again, this is a matter of direct action. Things we can do now with the resources we have, with the people we know. And the resource we have is housing. As of right now, 2021, there are an estimated 550,000 houseless persons in the United States. And the 2018 U.S. Census counted over 17 million vacant homes. Are they all habitable? Judging from REO property maintenance standards, likely not, but there are likely half a million homes that will suffice. In August 2020, activist group Occupy PHA, Philadelphia Housing Authority, led by Jennifer Benich, occupied 12 vacant PHA-owned homes, housing more than 50 persons, most of them single mothers with kids. Occupy PHA advocates for community land trusts, which essentially remove homes from state ownership and places them in the care of citizen collectives. Land trusts hold long-term ownership of physical property, the ground, and leases that land to the homeowners who have the right to own, maintain, and sell their homes either through rent-to-own or mortgage models. This, too, is tenuous. Some land trusts fail. 
they go broke and can't pay their bills, but this presses heavily on the quixotic notion of property ownership itself. Entrusted property ought be exempt from the tenuous circumstances of finance overall. The pursuit of collective ownership is not complete when a better financial deal is struck in favor of an, quote, inoffensive complement to the dominant forms of exploitative private property and state regulation within a capitalist system, end quote. If the goal is indeed to buck the individualist pursuit of capital accumulation, then it is the local collectivization of a place's people that makes it so the individual can be free. I would argue that so long as we concern ourselves with limiting access to available resources for those who need those resources, the individual is not at all worth serving as it operates on objective cruelty, that is to say, cruelty without exception. Overcoming the permissive cruelty of the individual is a major hurdle for yourself, for myself, for everyone, to gain an individualized identity within a community. It is possible to imagine a community that provides dignified housing with water, electricity, heat, air conditioning, internet, maintenance, physical space, to those who cannot afford it, that therefore respects the inherent rights of individuals to possess their own sacred domains without the precarity of instability. The right to access property and the right to privacy are therefore inherent human rights. That is, we are not to strip property rights away from current possessors, but to grant them to the dispossessed. What can be gained from dignified housing? The foremost advantage is that the guaranteed right to be in a place supersedes the prohibition to be elsewhere. The houseless and the underhoused are not criminals except by this prohibition that we are seemingly unwilling to lift. Possession is not the same thing as ownership. Possession implies current use or occupancy. It is the closest any of us can get to actual ownership with the state holding authority to remove a thing from our possession. Abolishing any system that operates counter to its stated purpose should be a matter of economic rationality. An institution that does not function properly or adversely affects the community in which it resides is subject to these same conditions that dictate the supply of Air Force Ones. In the case of law enforcement, the need or demand for equitable justice is not being met or supplied. Were the tenets of market theory fundamentally correct, this would be met with a direct drop in demand. Instead, the forces at work are artificial. The supply-side theory of the Thatcher and Reagan period is alive and well in the forced supply of law enforcement, despite its poor performance and the demand for reform or outright abolition from the very demographic groups that are overwhelmingly targeted over others, with black and Latinx Americans 12 times and 5 times more likely to be arrested than whites, respectively. Two unrelated statistics in comparison, the 75% incarceration rate for misdemeanor offenses and a 50% decrease in violent crime rates from 1991 to 2019, create a false narrative that overall more serious crime is reduced by targeting minor crimes, but facts don't support this narrative. From 2009 to 2019, the total population of U.S. prisons fell by 11%. 57% of this decrease is from the release of prisoners for minor drug charges. This is a good place to use our deficit and surplus math. Prisons experienced an 11% deficit in prison population, whereas the general public experienced an 11% surplus of former prisoners, which subsequently did not result in an increase of violent crime, and arrests overall have been decreasing since 2006. The decreases in violent crimes, charges for drug crimes, and arrests are the more interesting picture over the past two decades as they suggest one, misdemeanor drug offenses do not translate to violent crime, and two, crime rates change independently of arrest rates.
Again, if market principles were concrete or even accurate, our educated guesses about the relationship of imprisonment to crime rates, that imprisonment leads to a reduction in crime, should be supported by real-world data, but it appears we wish to tell ourselves a different story. We need police in order to feel safe because we do not feel safe in general probably because we understand on a much deeper level that there is no protective force that can prevent, predict, or reduce violence. But those exposed to the realities of active policing in their neighborhoods point to other factors that could help reduce or eliminate crime. Access to healthcare, education, transportation, jobs, drug treatment, housing, legalization of drugs, and food availability. We decide against these measures because of another fiction, the belief that we receive a better return on investment through punishment than entitlement. Though if we believed that fiction, we would not concern ourselves with such things as school districts, public parks, restaurants, and cost of living when choosing places to live. Instead, what our beliefs truly suggest is that different levels of income entitle buyers to specific benefits believed to afford comparative advantage over others. Of course, I'm no statistician, and my analysis on policing and crime is quite limited. Fortunately, some people make entire careers out of doing in-depth meta-analysis of crime statistics. The findings of the 2015 Crime and Delinquency article, <gasps> Can Policing Disorder Reduce Crime? A Systematic Review and Meta-Analysis, <sighs> suggest that targeting individual bad behavior has little to no effect on reducing crime overall. The broken-window approach of policing, in which zero tolerance and strict enforcement of public order are prioritized as policy, and may in fact aggravate criminal activity in communities due to an increase in distrust between police and citizens of low-income urban communities of color. This conclusion, while backed by meta-analysis, could also have been reached by simply fucking listening to the people who live in those communities from the start. The chaos we fear from the disappearance or collapse of social order, the abolition of police and property rights, and the protections entitled to us appears to be in direct proportion to the violence we support in the pursuit of comfort from that fear. But the chaos itself exists independent of our efforts against it, and the underlying fear of chaos is at the root of fundamental change. For direct action to be effective, it must be autonomous. It must function in direct opposition to the fear of chaos and must be independent of outside authority. Helping houseless women with children occupy vacant properties and turning on utilities is a direct action that does exactly this. Housing a family with electricity and running water is arguably less chaotic than otherwise letting them sleep outside, and it demonstrates that the governing housing authority is not best suited to the needs of the houseless. The efforts to remove these families also makes the hidden and passive cruelty apparent to the general public, many of whom likely wondered why the houseless were not being allowed to live in habitable housing. Our willingness to live passive, comfortable lives without considering the cruelty of depriving people of basic resources and denying them the same entitlements we enjoy ruins any argument that we value safety of any kind. That does it for chapter 11 on safety, comfort, and passive cruelty. It was a quick reimagining of what we cherish the most. Do we really value safety or do we value depriving humans of their dignity? It's a serious question worth considering the next time you see a homeless camp. Instead of offering you bonus material on this episode, I'm going to ask that you consider supporting your local street paper. Those are newspapers or newsletters created by the homeless or homeless adjacent and then sold by those very same people out on the streets. They are, they are always worth the investment. They're full of humor, art, sober op-eds, poetry, 
and they help the poor and houseless get solid footing. I encourage you to engage with local bail funds and alternative policing groups in your community. You may have to talk to people, to ask around to discover them. You may have to go outside your comfort zone, but that's kind of the whole point of this chapter. What is discomfort but a momentary pause on our curated, insulated lives? Surely we can all survive that. There are others surviving on much, much less.